HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Okay, it's Thursday at 1 o'clock, and you are listening to the Heritage Radio Network's Farm Report. Farm Report today is brought to you by White Oak Pastures. White Oak Pastures cattle are raised in a manner that has stood the test of time. It begins with southern sunshine, unpolluted country air, and fertile coastal soil. The cattle are allowed to roam the pastures and graze freely on sweet native grasses all of their lives. White Oak Pastures all-natural grass-fed beef has been available in all of the Whole Foods stores in the Mid-Atlantic states. We hope that you will support their program through your purchase of our beef through one of the Whole Foods stores. For more information, please go to www.whiteoakpastures.com. All right. We are live in studio at Roberta's. 261 Moore Street in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm here with my good friend, Scott Breedy. Welcome, Scott. Thank you, Aaron. It's good um, to be here. It's good to have you. I must say, Scott, you're looking pretty tan. <laughs> Just got back from Florida last uh, last week, actually. Awesome. It's fun. Well, welcome back Thank to you. New York. It's a little chillier here. Although I think if you laid outside on like a bed of foil, you could probably <laughs> you could probably still tan, right? I wouldn't know. I haven't tried that <laughs> uh, tactic, but I will next time I don't get a chance to go away. Um, all right. Well, Scott, we have uh, known each other for a long time. We met um, at the kitchen in Gramercy, a Gramercy Tavern. You were a badass line cook and i was a young protege looking up to you and your your fancy cooking ways but now uh you're no longer in the kitchen technically you just started a new business why don't you tell us a little bit about it sure yeah um i just started a a business called brooklyn cured that um focuses on selling charcuterie made from um farm-raised meats um to, uh, I'm selling right now at uh, the New Amsterdam Market on Sundays, and I hope to um, have other similar retail outlets until I get a space, which is, um, I'll, I think, a little bit down the line. But um, I'll also be selling, I'll be selling wholesale um, in the future um, to some restaurants and shops, and I'm also doing a little bit of consulting for restaurants and butcher shops who want to start their own charcuterie programs. And yeah, I feel like an ed- educational component is a good part of the business. Um, so teaching people how to make these things as well as making them well um, 
and yeah, it's it's so far it's been great. I'm also offering classes to folks uh, to the interested parties. Um, those are happening sporadically, but I have one coming up in the beginning of November. So yeah, it's exciting. Awesome, that's great. So. Um, you didn't grow up in like a family of butchers, right? I did not grow up in a family of butchers. No, not at all. Um, I did grow up in a family of people who did like to eat very well, and there was always a lot of food present on the table. Um, no, no butchers at all um, in the family. Um, there were financial people and bankers and things of this nature, but <laughs> um, yeah, just uh, yeah, just growing up in a big Italian family in Bensonhurst. Of, uh, yeah, Brooklyn. <laughs> that's what's up. Um, was, yeah, just like, I mean, gave me lots of great associations with um, food and togetherness. And that's why uh, I've chosen to work in kitchens and I've chosen um, to open this business, really. Cool. So why don't you set the stage a little bit for us? You're a young, Scotty Breedy senior in high school. And now you're the man who sits before me launching a uh, charcuterie business. What were the steps in between? How did you kind of get to where you are today? What a great question. Um, <laughs> um, I laugh because it's like there, there, were, there were no direct steps <laughs> taken. It's always the case with young um, entrepreneurial people out doing cool things. You know, you look back on it and you're like, right. there wasn't a plan, but... No, de- I am. definitely not a plan. I, th- I think some of my Facebook friends who knew me in uh, high school and, and uh, in grade school would be shocked to know that I now make uh, sausages and charcuterie for a living. <laughs> that you're not selling it like the San Gennaro festival. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, Scotty, we know Italian sausages, right? <laughs> Without a doubt. Um, gosh, in high school, I don't think I knew what I wanted to do at all, but um, I studied English literature in uh, Binghamton, New York. Um, was graduated from there and started a, a career in editing and publishing. Did that for a few years and decided that it really wasn't setting my life on fire. So <laughs> <laughs> I, um, yeah, I decided to try cooking professionally and I did not go to culinary school. Um, I started out when I was 26. So I literally walked into restaurants that I knew and enjoyed and asked them if they needed help in the kitchen. <laughs> it's like, um, Yeah, that's no. what I did too. I was like, uh, I'll peel carrots in the corner, whatever you want. Please, chef, please. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, and somehow that that uh, that tactic actually worked out a little bit. Um, the folks over at uh, Enoteca on the Lower East Side um gave me a shot it was like maybe three months after they opened and they were like yeah just i don't know uh come to play on monday like and i was there like two days a week while i was in publishing and uh already had exposure to um really good italian food like italian american staples um and lots of pork stores in my neighborhood where i grew up so there were always lots of cured meats around there were always um, lots of great cheeses around and olives and things of this nature. And these things were staples of uh, a holiday table or like before dinner, like great antipasti always um, present at family gatherings. And also like, yeah, um, so I had this exposure coming in. But then at Enoteca, I think I learned a lot more about um, Italian salumi they, that I really hadn't been exposed to uh, in depth before. 
um, things like culatello, which is like the heart of the prosciutto, and like we use that to make sandwiches, and like just the sheer like sweetness and and flavor profile of something like that um, really was like influential. Um, and just yeah, cooking with these things all the time and tasting them was really great. So um, I was at you know Teca for a, a couple of years and became a sous chef there and started developing specials like after many struggles. Then <laughs> like, um, uh, moved on to Gramercy Tavern. and Where we met. Where, where we did meet, yes, Miss <laughs> Fairbanks. Um, and that was uh, quite a life-changing experience, and it took so many twists and turns over the three and a half years that I was there. Um, and it was, yeah, it was wild. Um, I feel like I grew up in that restaurant, um as a cook as a person in some ways and i've seen other people in that time i was there do that as well it was so awesome um so i was a line cook there for about two years um just cooking some meat cooking fish cooking fresh pasta things that um were really just wonderful to cook under mike anthony who um the chef of gramercy tavern who's got an amazing palate and just really a bright flavor profile with like very colorful and beautiful food. Like that's all like market based. Um, I think his style of food has influenced me a lot in terms of how I put flavors together and how I put food together. Um, and I think it's influenced a lot of people that we worked with, honestly, like the, 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 the folks over at my like seem to have adopted some of like Mike's flavor profiles and techniques, which is awesome because um, to see that in an Italian format is just wonderful. But I digress. Um, yeah, um, after cooking at Gramercy for for line cooking at Gramercy for two years, um, I started uh, working uh, on their charcuterie program that Miss um, Fairbanks here started up <laughs> in the nation stage. Full, full disclosure. Full disclosure. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, after two years at Gramercy, I was just fiending to do something new. And the charcuterie program was a, a natural fit because Gramercy had been getting whole animals in, like um, whole pigs uh, from Flying Pigs Farm and sides of beef from Bev Eggleston at Eco-Friendly Foods. And there was not a whole lot of in-house um, uh, time. There, was, there just wasn't a lot of time devoted to utilizing every part of those um animals that we were getting in and they we felt as though we needed someone to devote the time to do that and that's where the charcuterie program came in um yeah just to set the scene a little bit um a whole you know we were getting in what i think three two and a half three pigs a week pigs are weighing in around 200 pounds um half a side of beef a week which is gosh i don't even know like hundreds of pounds so there's like you have to think about the the tiny walk-in space there, and just these whole animals coming in every week, and you, they got to get dealt with. And it was kind of an exciting time, I think, to take a look at those. There was, I think, when you took over the program, you know, there was some some stuff established, but really had a lot of free reign to just go ahead and and try things out. I mean, who who did you look to as far as were there other people in the kitchen that you were learning from, or were you reading books, or I mean. Charcuterie is one of those ancient arts, along with butchery, too. So where right. did you pick it up? Um, it, there, there, I, I, what I've found is that 
for as experienced and as accomplished as a lot of cooks are, not a lot of people have the experience uh, making it because I feel like the restaurant business is just so tight on every level. Space is tight. Time is tight. Um, money is tight. Um, it's an undertaking that I think for a lot of restaurants, um, they don't, ex- they just sort of um, ignore or have been ignoring um, because it just takes time and space and money that are not always present. Um, but at, I mean, at Gramercy, like I was essentially teaching myself, referring to a few books that are widely known, uh, Michael Ruhlman's Charcuterie, um, the chapter in curing uh, by uh, in cooking by hand by Paul Bertoli, two um, very influential documents that put me on the right path, um, and also like having discussions with Mike Anthony and uh, Nick Anderer, who was the executive sous chef at the time, just about what was going right, what was going wrong. Like again, like none of us really had a lot of experience doing it, and I think the only way that you get proficient at it is. Um, through trial and error and there was there was a bit of error but um, just noticing I think what goes wrong anytime um, I'd made something and just keeping those things in mind and not repeating them and like critically thinking um, about the variables that could make it go right were that this is it it was very important to like um, making things successfully sure sure so thinking you know I know, I definitely felt like Gramercy was one of the best um, cooking spaces out there. I mean, there was really a kitchen unique for New, York, un, or, whew, for New York. It was a kitchen designed to cook in where I feel like a lot of spaces in the city are spaces that you kind of make work for a kitchen. So you're doing charcuterie work at, at, at Gramercy, tons of space, great products, whole animals, super busy, really easy to... Um, kind of find an outlet for all those products. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how whole animal cooking is different at a place like that versus maybe um, the place you were at after Gramercy a lot too? Right. Um, yeah. The uh, There were a lot of resources available. There was a lot of space and a lot of um, people to, to do some work. Like we had in-house butchers, so I didn't really get my hands on doing much butchery there per se. Um and it just, yeah, um, there were always outlets for something like we made head cheese every week that was a that we that we called a pork terrine for an amuse bouche, um, and that like people loved it, um, and it just flew out the door because like there were upwards of two hundred people a night coming in through the doors, and everyone got this amuse. Um, we're making mortadella for the uh, utilizing some of the pork fat from some of the fattier pigs that we were getting. Um, and yeah, there were just outlets for every single part of the animal. And it was like, nothing would really sit around for any length of time um, because of the high like, volume atmosphere. Yeah. One of the differences, I mean, from the farmer's perspective, it's obviously ideal to sell a restaurant, a whole animal because you don't right. have to pay as it's the farmer. you you know, you raise it, you pay the slaughtering fee, you deliver it. But then you're done. And I, and I think one of the big learnings for me and a lot of people is that, um, you know, for every kind of rack of pork chops, there's like a head and a tail and a feet attached to that. So one of the things I, I think I'm kind of always thinking about is where's all that stuff going? And and I know, for example, Heritage, like that's that's the big game every week. You know, you have all right. the chef's orders and you have all the pigs and trying to match 
those pieces together. So from a farmer's perspective, it's like super ideal to be able to sell a restaurant, a whole animal, but I think it definitely requires chefs to be a little more creative and then also to be also their guests to kind of be a little more flexible with trying new things like the head head cheese. No, absolutely. Um, there has to, there has to be an agility um, in a kitchen and there also has to be um, a, a willingness of the, the customers to like try some things out that they might not have tried before. And that kind of platform might be more present at a place like Gramercy Tavern that's established rather than like maybe a smaller neighborhood restaurant. Um, but yeah, you're totally right. There are lots of excess like heads out there and jowls. And I, I think just um, in the last couple of years, like there's been more of a movement to try to utilize those things. So um, I think more restaurants are getting into that. And So we're going to talk a little bit more about doing it in a small format and talk here and then a little bit more what's happening at Brooklyn Cured. You're on the Farm Report, the Heritage Radio Network with Scotty Breedy. We'll be right back. I was walking down the beach looking for some action. Had my radio set on a rap rap station. Saw a girl in trouble, a sticky situation. She wanted me to give her mouth to mouth to just catch We were cruising down the beach, checking out the action. Had my radio rocking to a heavy metal station. Putting on some shades, trying to catch some rays. When I caught the lifeguard, messing with my face. And you're back on the Farm Report, the Heritage Radio Network. We are in Bushwick, Brooklyn, at the back of Roberta's. I'm here with Scott Breedy of Brooklyn Cured, talking about making charcuterie. So, Scott, right before the break, we were, we were talking a little bit about um, the difference in working with whole animals uh, at, a, at a smaller restaurant, kind of making our way through your journey as a young man. Um, <laughs> why don't you tell us, you moved from Gramercy, you, you became the head chef at a new restaurant in Brooklyn called Lot 2. Tell us a little bit about putting a menu together there and kind of your struggles or your um, successes kind of working with farmers or not. Sure. Um, yeah, going into that uh that project opening that restaurant last summer um we had every intention of um sourcing our meat from from farmers and i had all these relationships with farmers at from gramercy and we thought it would be like a slam dunk <laughs> but um it, it, there were some difficulties um at the time last summer um it was in the beginning of the summer that we opened and we i was talking to uh, Bev Eggleston about using his pork over at Lot 2, like some pork shoulder for a, a, a fennel sausage um, and getting some pig heads for a head cheese for the menu. And we, I remember us having a two-hour-long phone conversation in the restaurant before we, before we opened. Um, and 
at the time, he was telling me that, now this is pretty anecdotal, but it, I think it's pretty emblematic of how things were and are changing. Um, he told me that he didn't uh, deliver to restaurants in Brooklyn. Um, <gasps> <laughs> and this was like last summer. So it was the beginning of the summer, 2009. And obviously that's changed now. He's over at Fatty Q. He's over at Marlowe and Daughters. Um, and I'm, I'm sure there are other places that he delivers to. But so over the last like year only, he, um, when I was a chef at Lot 2, he, he said that like he wouldn't be able to deliver pork to us um, sure, because there I think, was no market. Yeah, and as a farmer to come all the way out, you know, it's an extra hour and a half on your day to deliver one pork shoulder. It's just kind of, it's tough. Right, absolutely. And I totally understood his perspective, but I remember telling him that within a year, at least, this is going to blow up. <laughs> I remember having, the conversation we had was that, like, Bev, Brooklyn is the next frontier. And, like, I mean, um, I, I wasn't, like... Yeah, it, it it was pretty predictive. Like all the all the signs were there with all the new restaurants opening in Brooklyn over the last couple of years. And I remember like making a case for Brooklyn as like a place that he has to be, a place where I think he would be contextually like supported without a doubt. And I, I think he's found out that to be the case. But at the time, um, it, it was it was difficult to uh, to to source meat um, to get people to come to Sunset Park, especially for. Um, the, the volume that we were doing, which was not very high at all. It's a, it was a small, it's a small restaurant that's um, got 40 seats. So, um, and yeah, in order to make it worth someone's while, um, you have to be ordering like some amount of volume. So like we weren't ordering whole pigs. I didn't have the, the, um, the space to necessarily um, store uh, like a carcass like this. And yeah, they're definitely different than Gramercy where you had all the resources like like virtually unlimited resources available um, in terms of space and labor and time. Um, so I had to think creatively about um, making the type of food I wanted to make using certain parts of animals that I wanted to use. And I, I, I sourced some pig heads from, from Basis um, who uh, use John Ubaldo, uh, John Ubaldo's pork, and that's basis farm to chef they're like a, a distribution company right they work with exactly. farmers in the in the tri-state area exactly as kind of a, a middleman you call them and they they call the farmers and then the pigs show up yes or the pig heads in this case <laughs> yeah um so i i used them for a while but um like it it, it wasn't their supply was not always um reliable just i mean which is understandable if they're 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 dealing with um, farmers who have relatively uh, small production facilities, like you're not always going to be able to call up and get exactly what you want. So there were some struggles there. Um, but yeah, I was able to piece some things together and not always source meat from where exactly where I wanted to, um, which was at times troubling. And at times, like I just had to say, you know what, like, this is just the way it has to be. Um, <laughs> I, I can't go chasing down farmers um, to, to to put their meat on, on, on the plate. Like as much as I would have liked to have that time, the reality is um, that like... You had some other stuff going on. Yeah. You were opening a restaurant. <laughs> yeah, you Well, know. I think too that speaks to, to the, the volume of supply. I mean, that... I know that was one of the things that was one of the biggest problems up at flying pigs was we had more demand than, than we had supply, especially when you're, you know, you're looking at rare breed or heritage animals 
raised on pasture, there's just not a ton of people doing it. And entry into that market from a farming perspective, you know, it takes a couple of years. You don't just, it's not a turnkey operation. You don't just show up and have a farm. So I think people kind of out there knowing that that demand is there. I know like we had farmers coming to us up at Flying Pigs, like, hey, how do I get into this business? Is there room to grow? And so I think that that energy is good, but the same as Bev, you know, not delivering in, in Brooklyn a year ago, that stuff is kind of slowly changing. You know, you're built, definitely like building the memento no, or I, momentum. <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, yeah, you could totally see that. And I think with the, with the um, proliferation of, new markets like throughout the city in Brooklyn, things like the Brooklyn Flea and New Amsterdam market, I, I think that um, that much more access will be granted. I mean, of course, like farmers are selling at farmers markets, but not all farmers could come down and, and things like basis farm to chef could are also helpful in yeah. terms of distributing and like not all farmers want to come down. This is true. You might find this hard to believe, but some people <laughs> don't want to come to New York City. <laughs> I don't find it hard to believe sometimes. <laughs> but, um. All right. Well, let, let's talk a little bit more about Brooklyn Cured. So, um, you know, when did it open? You said that you're selling at the New Amsterdam market. Tell us a little bit about kind of how how you decided to, to pursue this project and what kind of stuff you're making and then where people can find it. Sure. Um, it is... Brooklyn Cured is in its very uh, beginning stages. I I started it up um, just under two months ago. Um, fresh meat, <laughs> very fresh meat, um, without uh, a retail space, without a space that's my own. Um, so it, it's it's been pretty challenging. I've uh, right now um, selling retail at the New Amsterdam Market every Sunday from eleven to four p.m. Um, and I hope to, in the very near future, have other retail outlets as well. Um, the New Amsterdam market's located... It's located, um, at the South Street Seaport at the site of the original Fulton Fish Market. Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful market. I highly recommend if you haven't been down to check it out yet this season, you can see Scotty's pretty face and so many other things. It's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty great place where lots of, uh... It, it it seems like a place where lots of um, small businesses, great with great products, are 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 displaying their wares, like uh, the Mass Brothers chocolate, Little Bit Sweets, uh, the People's Pops. Um, yeah, like some some really really uh, great local businesses are just selling there. Some really great farmers as well. So there's produce, there's meat, like. Um, uh, yeah, like uh, Moose Fun Farm out in New Jersey, like they're raising exclusively Mangalitsa pigs, and I've and this is their first retail outlet as well. And I've been using some of their pork for um, a couple of my products. So um, yeah, talking about uh, gaining access into a market, these guys are I think just started within the last year, and they have some really great pork. And like the market is just bringing the vendors together. It's like. We happened to share like neighboring stands, and I was like, "What's up, guys? Like, you have any pork for me to use in this uh, barbecue pork sausage that I'm gonna make?" And they're like, "Yeah, sure." <laughs> like, so it's like talking about like access to it rather than you know um, delivering anything. You just like sort of like it's like an exchange. It's like face to face. So I feel like the market is promoting those types of relationships. That's um, great. Yeah. So, so really where awesome. are you making sausages? Um, 
I'm making sausages uh, right now in a commercial kitchen in Carroll Gardens. And yeah, it's uh, USDA uh, inspected and and all all that good stuff. So I'm not just making it out of my house, even though I don't have it. <laughs> which people ask me, and I'm like, um, no, no, can't actually do that. That would be, I guess, awesome, but not really. <laughs> so what's on the menu? What are you making? Um, I am. Um, I have a few fresh sausages that I'm making. Um, a chicken sausage with roasted garlic and white wine. A lamb sausage with black olives and red wine. And lemon zest, which is very tangy and delicious. Um, a barbecue pork sausage, which I mentioned, which is a coarsely ground pork sausage uh, that has the flavors of a barbecue rub that I've uh, used in the past, like some pimenton and celery seed and Tabasco. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, also making a country pate with some orange zest and port wine that's been very popular at the market. Um, duck riette with sweet vermouth and a smoked pork riette. That's and also some breakfast links as well. Um, that's my product line for now, but in the very near future, I hope to get a smoker and make some hot dogs and bacon and really delicious smoky treats. meaty treats. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so where are you? Where are you sourcing your meat from now, I'm, or or where do you want to be sourcing it from, or kind of what's the what's the vision for the future of Brooklyn cured? Um, meat supply yeah i don't know how how deep the vision goes um only because of the access that we're talking about um like the folks at hudson valley duck farm are also at the new amsterdam market so i've been talking to them about sourcing duck uh from from them and that's very close to happening i think i actually might um start using their duck starting this week which is really great and i've been using pork from moose fun from moose, i'm sorry moose fun farm and um in terms of chickens i've been using bobo chickens so i'm like i feel like in a good place like but i'm always open to like new relationships with farmers and trying to to really work that out like i'm really trying to source all my meat from from local farms and being so small um it's it's going to be a challenge but i feel like the, the New Amsterdam market has really given me a platform to do that more quickly than I could have hoped. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Sounds like the place to be. So far, so good. Awesome. So, <laughs> Scotty, um, tell us a little bit. You mentioned um, some classes and some other stuff that you have going on through Brooklyn Cured. If people want to learn more about making sausages, uh, how do they get in touch with you? How do they find out more about your stuff? Sure. Um, I have a website. It's uh, www brooklyncured.com and you can check me out there i have information about classes that i offer to the public um i will be teaching a class on making pate and riettes on wednesday november 3rd at 8 p.m at uh, pinkerton wine bar in williamsburg it's on havemeyer and north six and to register for the class you can email me um my email address is scott at brooklyncured.com and all of that information is on the website. Awesome. Well, Scott, it was so great to have you on the show today. Learn a little bit about your product. Rehash old times in the <laughs> kitchen. Um, I'm a little sad. I forgot to mention at the beginning of the show, my co-host, Heather, is road tripping this weekend. So, Heather, if you're listening, what's up? I hope you're having a good time, girl. <laughs> want to send a big thank you to White Oat Pastures for sponsoring our show today. Tune in next Thursday on the Heritage Farm Report. We'll have um, Taylor and Dorothy of Good Food Jobs. If you want to find out more about 
working in this wonderful food industry we've been exploring. Um, they are the girls to talk to. Next week, 1 o'clock, Thursday. Thursday.